brought to you by CGTN Europe. Welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Janice O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keelan. Coming up in this edition. Joe Colan's been to Liverpool to meet the team trying to produce a universal snake bite anti-venom. I felt like somebody had sticking my arm into boiling oil and grinding my bones together. And I went to Iceland to see how carbon capture is turning CO2 emissions into stone, would you believe? But you could take all the CO2 of all fossil fuel that we know of on Earth, and you can store it into all of the oceanic riches. And I went to check out an eco-marathon. I was going to take that corner really fast. Smell of gasoline, and that was fun. Jenny, how does an eco-marathon involve the use of gasoline? Aha, my dear Emma, you will hear about it very soon. Okay, my dear. It's been called the world's biggest health crisis by some, but it isn't an illness or disease and it isn't contagious. It's snake bite. Dun, dun, dun. I was actually on this uh, shoot, Shanique, but I was the producer, which was quite good because Joe, as the reporter, I was just pushing her towards them. This was so fascinating, but the one disappointment I had was the fact I wasn't allowed to touch a snake, which is understandable. I just, even the t- tip of a tail, but they wouldn't let me. But anyway, I will tell you all about all the other cool stuff in a moment. In Liverpool, a team of researchers are trying to produce the first ever universal snake bite anti-venom. Paul Rowley is the senior reptile handler, also known as a herpetologist, and he told Joe Colan what it was like when he was bitten. The last bite was from an eight-week-old baby western diamondback rattlesnake, a small snake, obviously at that size. Um, I actually slipped with the lid, my hands were wet and I slipped, and it came round the side and bit me in the side of the hand. And um, I said a few naughty words and went and reported it to the boss, thinking that it wouldn't be a significant bite given the size of the snake, but I had 26 ampules of antivenom, which is an, quite a large amount of antivenom. I spent several days in hospital with that, and the pain level was beyond anything I've experienced before. I felt like uh, somebody had was uh, sticking my arm into boiling oil and grinding my bones together. And uh, I crashed motorbikes and broken bones in the past, and that was nowhere near as bad as the pain level from a very small eight-week-old baby rattlesnake. One method of creating antivenom is to inject tiny amounts of venom into horses. The horses produce antibodies in their blood, which is harvested for later use. One thing you may not know, Shinny, and I'm about to tell you because I am now an ex- kind of an expert, but basically every snake has its own unique poison. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. So you didn't need to touch one to find that out. <laughs> no, there was a lot of very helpful tips on how not to get bitten, etc., etc. We won't go through the list. I'm sure there are many. <laughs> but what they did come up with is a potential solution which has come from a very unexpected area of research. Professor Robert Harrison from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine has been working on antivenom for many years. It was one of those eureka telephone calls, just doing routine work in the office, and then I got a telephone call from a scientist called Dr. Devin Sock in, in the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative in San Diego. And the telephone call was, do you want to collaborate with us? Reaction. Not on HIV, but on snake well, exactly. bite. Exactly, that was my reaction. Why, why, why HIV? And he, was, he explained very quickly um, was that they had technical platforms that they had developed for their HIV vaccine research that he thought we could use very usefully for snake bite. 
And so it was one of those 20 minute calls where the enthusiasm on both sides of, of the Atlantic just rocked up. Amazing. And, and it ended up, here we are, with, with nine million pounds from Diffid to fund research and a completely new ther therapy for snake bite. The HIV researchers found that some humans develop broadly neutralizing antibodies that prevent infection by most HIV strains. Emma? What on earth does that mean? <laughs> Basically, what that means is, even though you completely dropped me in it, is that the reason that HIV, as it said there, is so hard to treat is because there are so many different strains. And that's exactly what it's like with snakes. Mm. As I said before, every snake has its own unique poison. And so they sort of used the um, HIV solution as a model for the snakes. Well, Professor Nick Casewell from the Wellcome Trust explained how this applies to snake bite venom. So there are lots of different toxins found in different snake species and these change from one species to the next. And what we're hoping to be able to do is to engineer antibodies so that they can broadly recognise lots of these different toxins, no matter which snake bites a person, and so they can be neutralised in a generic manner. And neutralised to the point where they no longer have disabling or fatal effects that's right. So we want to intervene with these antibodies that will stick to the venom proteins, the toxins, stop them from causing their toxic action no matter what it is, where it is in the body, and ultimately prevent that damage or even death in a snake bite victim. Does that mean that we wouldn't be collecting venom, which comes with risks, and including snake venom in the process? Certainly we wouldn't need to take venom and inject it into an animal in the way that snake bite therapies are made today. We'd be able to, to grow cells that produce the antibodies in the laboratory and remove the animals from the, from the process. So we really are looking at next generation anti-venom. It is next generation anti-venom and it's going to come with a lot of challenges and it'll take some time I think before we're able to crack this and develop something that we can give to patients. But this is a great first step, this project, in enabling us to hopefully really improve the lives and livelihoods of snake bite victims. As the world struggles to deal with the climate crisis, scientists are looking for all different kinds of ways to offset our carbon emissions. Iceland is a world leader in renewable energy. In fact, all of its electricity comes from geothermal activity. And being a volcanic country, there's plenty of it. And geothermal is a pretty green source of energy. Well, you would think so. I mean, it's just Earth's burps, isn't oh, it? Oh, is it not? It is. But look, even geothermal plants create carbon dioxide. However, a new venture is pioneering a process to capture CO2. So I went to find out more. And I spoke to Dr. Edda Aradotto. She's from a venture called Carbfix. So the CO2 flows through the power plant process with the steam phase. After it's gone through the turbines, we condense the steam, so it just turns into water, mm -hmm. and we capture the CO2 by dissolving it in water. So it's basically water scrubbing, uh, making soda water from the CO2. And then from here, where does it go? And uh, it's injected into the subsurface. So the CO2 mixture is coming in here and then... Goes underground. This well is about two kilometer deep. So you're pushing it down underground at quite high pressure? It's around uh, eight bars. It's not that high. And then reactions that occur in nature between the rock and the dissolved gases turn the gases into stone. And stone is just stone. Emma, I must say that I always thought that geothermal energy was really green. And the fact that it's actually producing carbon dioxide is quite surprising. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the earth is a complex place, Jenny, <laughs> as we keep learning in every single episode of Razor. <laughs> now, Iceland is now looking to apply this technology to other CO2-emitting industrial plants. Now, probably one of my favourite professors that I've met so far, Professor Siggy Gislason, he is one of the co-founders of the Carb Fix, and he explained the possibilities of this process. The storage capacity is huge. On a big scale, we looked at all of the oceanic riches, but you could take all the CO2 from burning of all fossil fuel that we know of on Earth, you could take that CO2 and you can store it into all of the oceanic riches. There is enough storage capacity for it, but we will not do it. It's not economical to do it. Do you know, the technology sounds so interesting, almost too good to be true. But how come everyone isn't doing this? I know, it it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But not everyone has access to basalt rock. And also another drawback is you do need a lot of water for the process. So it is quite expensive. It takes about 25 tonnes of water to convert one tonne of CO2. And that's why when we take this and expand this all over the world, this method, you know, we're going to need something else. And we're doing some experiments with this, mm-hmm. where we're using seawater rather than fresh water. Because at the moment, you're, you're just putting the, the CO2 mixture you know, on the ground, but you want to take this offshore yeah, and offshore. put it under the yeah, seabed. Yeah. And that's what we're playing with now. You know, mm-hmm. We haven't done it yet with seawater offshore, mm-hmm. but it will be done soon. There is a lot of things in making now. Mm. Do you know, the idea that you're actually just converting carbon dioxide into something is already very... Stone! I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Stone. But it's also really reassuring that we're thinking of doing this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Professor Siggy seems to be someone who thinks that this could solve the massive issue. Well, don't get too ahead of yourself, because that's what I did too. I was like, oh, this is it. We've solved it. We've, we've sorted this out. But Professor Siggy did admit that with the world's producing around 40 gigatons, gigatons of CO2 per year, This is just a drop in the ocean, a drop in the bucket, whatever you'd like to say. So, Emma, what was your impression of the plant? Did it feel like you were looking at the future? Well, I think, as I said before, I was quite blown away that, you know, you could take CO2, mix it with water and put it in the earth, and then the earth does its thing. Well, in basalt rock, actually, because it doesn't take that long for it to turn to stone, but... Yeah, I think it was tempered by the fact that we are putting out so much into the atmosphere. We're going to need so many different solutions. If you're familiar with the story of the hare and the tortoise, you'll know that the fastest competitor doesn't always come first. And so it's true of the annual Shell Eco Marathon, a competition among teams from around the world to produce the most eco-efficient car. 1,500 students from 28 countries recently came together to a motor circuit just outside London. Okay, so we're not talking about how fast. How far can these cars go? You know, what we were really measuring was how far they can get on one litre of fuel or one sort of kilowatt of electricity. And it's the best way to measure how these cars are performing. I spoke to Thomas Cabaret from Team Microjoule. They have a world record for the longest distance covered with one litre of fuel. We have the world record is um, uh, 3,700 kilometres per litre of gasoline. Um, 3,000 kilometres? Yes, with one litre of gasoline. Wow. So how do you achieve that? What's been your secret? The weight of the car is um, around um, 34 kilos. Like, the, the fact that these materials are so light is what makes this very special. Yes, all, all of the car is on carbon fibre. Ye- yesterday we do a very, very good run. 
Well, good luck for later. Thank you, thank you. Um, I have my fingers crossed, very confident for you guys. And see you later on the track. Yes, yes. You know what, I have a vision of, of one of these cars and I'm guessing it doesn't really look much like a Ferrari. Do you know what, it was so funny because I put on a seat and I was like all geared up for what, going like, really like a fast. Racing car driver yeah, seat. like a proper Formula One <laughs> kind of, I had the helmet and everything. Oh, I bet you thought you were the shizzle. And then I was moving slower than I could walk. <laughs> I mean, well, you know. It's probably... And I had to sort of lie down. It was actually like kind of getting into bed. It was all snug, <laughs> snuggly and everything. I'm inside. not taking one of these things shopping, but they're, they're pretty teeny tiny cars at the moment because obviously it is, as you say, it's all about the technology. Norman Cock is general manager of the Eco Marathon. He was keen to point out that while it was technically a competition, it also was a huge educational exercise. There are clearly teams here who are there to win, but many, many others use the Shell Eco Marathon either as a teaching tool or they use it as a technology carrier to promote a particular technology that they have researched, a piece of equipment that they have invented, and just show the world that's what we have, that's what we can do. An eco-marathon is a perfect tool for that. And there's no better place to really test these materials than on a racetrack. Absolutely. And at the same time, you teach young people how to work with them, how to improve them, how to apply them. And this knowledge then goes out in the industry or they start their own entrepreneurships. Mm -hmm. And that's how you propagate good ideas. It's the best way to learn, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in the classroom, you can learn anything in the classroom, but how to apply it. Co-working, working together with others, focusing on problem solving and really dealing with the shortage of time and money. That is what the life of an engineer and a scientist is all about. Yeah. There's never enough time and money. There is never enough help that you can ask for. And you learn all this already in a very practical environment and so good fun. Yeah. I think one of the things that I came away with was this idea that we'll never have to use petrol again if the technologies that we were seeing that day were to be advanced. But actually, it's more about efficiency and reducing the current fuel that we use so readily today, which is petrol. I, I'm an engineer myself, and I think the choices of cars, the choices of energies, will only get more, not less. I was born at a time when my parents could choose basically between two cars, gasoline and diesel, mm. and that was it for decades. Now we can already choose between hydrogen cars, electric cars, combustion cars, hybridized cars. And if I look forward another 10, 15 years, if anything, that choice will get bigger. Because each energy has advantages, each energy has disadvantages, or is not so great in certain use cases. And the students here have the fantastic opportunity to practice all of them, and any of them that they like to work on. So Shani, was it a massive geek fest? I know you are a massive geek, so you were obviously amongst your people. Or did you see some real practical applications that could work in the future? Do you know what? I saw both. It was really good to spend the day with people that are absolutely passionate about engineering and innovation. But it was also great to see the ideas that came out from that day. You know, people have been working on these cars for weeks and months and getting all stressed about it. And I think the most exciting thing about the day was watching people really troubleshoot for those last minute problems before they put their car on the racetrack. Such a great episode. So look, if you actually want to see these stories, go to cgtn.com forward slash Europe. Scroll down the page, you will see our Razor logo. Click on that. Lovely to be with you. Hopefully see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.